I hope you grabbed that cup of coffee because I want to start my message with a pop quiz. I'm going to share a quote and I want to ask you two things. Number one, do you know where it's from? And number two, do you know what aspect of God it is highlighting? Where is it from and what aspect of God is it highlighting? Here's the quote. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. End quote. Anyone know where that came from? The Westminster Confession. What, here's the second question. Maybe we'll get this one. What, what aspect of God's character is that bringing out? And I'll give you a hint. The word was in there. P providence. Providence. It's not a word we hear a lot these days, but in centuries past, Christians talked about the providence of God a lot. And I'm telling you, it's something we need to hold on to today in the world in which we live. Okay, I, I summarized it like this. What is the providence of God? The providence of God is this. God is actively at work in the events of the world and our lives. Not just in the spectacular and the unusual, but in our daily ups and downs, even in the mundane and the tragic, He is working for His glory and the good of his people. That's providence as, as I best understand it. I bring it up at the beginning of Ruth because you see providence, God's providence as a thread through this book. We're going to meet some really interesting and inspiring human characters as well, but they are not the main player in this book. The main player is our God. And you're going to see the name Yahweh the covenant-keeping God who works out His promises for His people 17 times in four short chapters. The, the God of providence. Ruth is an interesting book uh, for the Jewish people because early June, many Jews around the world will gather together and read through this whole book at the Feast of Weeks. That's when the wheat harvest comes in. You'll see a lot of harvest in this book, although in this book it's, it's barley. But that, that's one of the, the reasons they'll be reading it then. So let's dive in as we talk about the providence of God. I want to bring it out through a couple contrasts. And the first one is the macro and the micro. Macro big, micro small. Why do I bring that up in the context of God's providence. Because listen, I think sometimes in our focus on the darkness of the large scale, and how many of us would admit it's pretty dark? Sometimes in our focus on the macro, we forget that God does much of His best work on the small scale, in the micro. What am I talking about? We'll see it in this book, okay? I want you to dive in. Ruth chapter 1, 
verse 1. We're going to start look by looking at the macro. What was going on in the world at the time of the book of Ruth? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, obviously the land of Israel. Okay, that short little phrase, in the days when the judges ruled, were those great days in Israel? No, exactly the, the opposite. Those were tragic, heart-rending days. You would not want to live in Israel at that time. The dates are a little bit hard to pin down, but most scholars think we're talking about 1400 to 1050 B.C., somewhere in there. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, you know why I say it was a tragic time, right? There was this cycle that kept happening over and over and over in Israel. They, they got into the promised land under Joshua, and within a generation, the people were already turning away from the Lord. They, they, they begin to worship the idols of their neighbors. You say, why would you be tempted to worship an idol? Well, many of those idols were fertility gods like Baal and Ashtoreth. And fertility had to do not just with babies, but with your land. And land and agriculture was finance back then. Okay? And so they'd be tempted. My, my neighbor worships Baal, who's the god of fertility. Maybe I should do that too, just to make sure the crops come in. It was a, a sin. They turned away from God to Baal, but the driving force was financial. We can understand that, right? Jesus talks about that in the New Testament. You cannot worship both God and money. We might not go out and worship a, an idol, but how many of us know the tug about finances? That's what's going on in the land, and the people would turn to those foreign gods over and over. And, and then God, as he promised in his covenant, disciplined his people. He would allow raiders from other countries to come in and have their way with the people and bring destruction and death. And the people would cry out to God in repentance. We're sorry. We're sorry. We, we turn back to you. And, and God would send a judge. You know, some of them, Gideon, Samson, read the book. It's great reading. Dark, but, but great reading. Some of the things that happened. The, the judge would deliver them. This wasn't a judge with a robe. This was a judge with a sword, usually. Different kind of judge. Would deliver them. The people would worship God for a time, and then the tug towards the idols would start again. And I think six or seven times in that book, that cycle happened again and again and again. Often in the book, you find them, instead of fighting their enemies, the tribes are, are fighting each other. There's the idol worship we mentioned. There's sexual immorality, even in the religious leadership. Anybody remember the summary verse of what was going on at that time in the book of Judges? Judges 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We could start a newspaper with that as the title today, couldn't we? Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. The macro was dark. But it's in the days when the judges ruled that we meet this family, the micro. We're going to start to look at how God's going to work in the micro of a family. There's this famine going on. Into verse 1, there's a man of Bethlehem. See how it goes from the big to the, zooms right in on a man. Man of Bethlehem. 
in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, I was talking with Dave a couple weeks ago. He, he was telling me that's about a 50-mile journey to the other side of the Dead Sea. So this family heads out. Why? Because there's famine. This father wants his family to, to find food. So they go to, to Moab. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, which means my God is king. My God is king. And the name of his wife, Naomi, which means pleasant or lovely. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So you see the macro, the days when the judges ruled. You see the micro of this family that God is going to work his plan through, okay? I want to talk about our world, macro. A lot of people talking about nuclear war, right? Okay, Some, somebody on my street came up to me one day this week and was talking about the, the, the possibility of it, okay? It's on the news, the possibility. That's macro. C.S. Lewis back in 1948 at the end of World War II, after all how that war finished, wrote about atomic bombs. And I think what he wrote is timely. He, he, first he talks about the macro, and then he talks about the micro. Listen to what he said about the macro. He said, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might come at any time. Or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. That's the macro. It's dark, right? We could get lost there. We could forget in that kind of macro that God often works in the micro. Thankfully, he comes around to the micro with some inspiring words for us. He says, if we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes... Find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Now that part's denominational. <laughs> so don't come to me nasty letters. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, he adds. That's interesting as well. But they need not dominate our minds. See how he brought it around to the micro? Come what may, let this world find God's people trusting him, loving their neighbor as they love themselves, sharing the good news of Jesus, loving their families, and living life for his glory. Let's not focus on the darkness of the large scale so much that we forget God often does his best work in the micro. God, what do you want to do in me today? What do you want to do in my family? What do you want to do in our church, our community? Okay, second one I want to talk about is the present and the future. Okay, because sometimes we forget that just because we're stuck in the present, God is not. God is not stuck in the present. We are. We live moment by moment. He is not 
in that same trap. And I, why do I mention that? We're in chapter one of Ruth. And many of you have read this book either this week or in the past. And you know all about chapter two, three, and four. Spoiler alert, there's a lot of blessings coming. Okay? We know about that. I bring this present and future thing up because none of these people in chapter one that we're reading about knew about those great blessings yet. They had to live chapter one moment by moment, just like you and I live our lives. Okay? And when we do that, we can become focused on some things in a way that, that keeps us from embracing other realities. One thing we can get focused on is the pain of the moment. And that's understandable at times because life hits hard. Every one of you in this room knows what it is to walk, walk through a dark valley that hits you like a ton of bricks. And, and the hot tears just flow and it's almost all you can see. You're numb at that moment. Sometimes as we live moment by moment, all we can see is the pain. We can forget that God is still working toward a good purpose even in the midst of that pain. Think of the, the pain of what's about to happen to this family. Go with me. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. We could stop there. If you've ever lost a, a spouse, a child, someone that close, you know what's going on here. She is experiencing intense pain. Her husband has died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there in Moab about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion, the two sons, died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So you multiply her pain times three, not just the husband, but her two boys. She is grieving three people in her family. We wouldn't blame her for only seeing the pain here. Any of us as humans would find ourselves there. It's tragic. Those of us who know the book know that God is working in the midst of this pain. We also know that God sometimes works in our lives in unexpected ways ways that would surprise us or those around us. One of the, the unexpected things here is that he's going to work through two marriages where two Jewish boys married Moabite women. That would be un unusual at this time. Why? Deuteronomy 7.3 had prohibited the Israelites from marrying Canaanites. That did not include Moabites, but... There were many warnings about marrying women from other cultures who worshipped other gods, which Moabites did. Why? Because you marry someone who worships another god, like Solomon, there's a good chance you're going to get pulled into that worship. The Moabites worshipped a god named Shamash. It's also unexpected because if you read Deuteronomy 23, Moabites were excluded from the congregation of Israel, largely because, if you remember, when Israel was on their way to the promised land, the Moabites did not give them the most warm 
welcome. That's to understate it big time. You go back and, and read it. There's also the, the origins of the Moabites, which would cause this, this, this to be unexpected. You remember when Lot ran away from Sodom and Gomorrah and ended up in a cave with his two daughters? And they got him drunk so they could have children. One of them had a child that became the, the father of the Ammonite group of people who often warred against Israel. The other had a child who became the founder of the Moabites who often clashed with Israel. So you can see this is unexpected in, in many, many ways. But God has a purpose in all of this. Verse 6, these three grieving widows... As she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people back in Bethlehem, the house of bread, back in Israel. She heard that he had visited his people and given them food. Now, here's one instance of that providence I was talking about. They're 50 miles away, somewhere in Moab, and God allows word of this to get to Naomi's ears. He had visited his people and brought food. And the bringing of food itself was his hand, right? So what'd she do? Verse 7, it says, She set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So sometimes we get focused on the pain. I want to lead into the second thing. Sometimes we get focused on the cost of following God. Some of you know there's a cost of following God in this world. Some of you have paid it a time or two for taking a stand with someone you love or someone you work for. Sometimes we can only get focused on the cost. Naomi's about to lay out the cost to these two young widows that want to go back to Israel with her. She doesn't want them to be naive about what, what's going on. Listen in verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. Why? Is it that she doesn't enjoy their company? No, she is thinking of their welfare. She says, May, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She wanted them to go back to their people and find another husband. Right? We understand that today. Back then, it was even more important, and we'll talk about why in a moment. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. How emotional is this right here, right? These three women crying and, and working through this. And then Naomi gets real blunt about the cost. Of following her. Verse 11, she looks at them and she says, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? What's she talking about there? She's talking about something called leveret marriage that God had given Israel. If a man dies and a woman needs to maintain her land, it was the duty of one of the man's brothers to marry that woman so that the land could stay within the family. And, and she's talking about herself 
She's saying, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Look, guys, I'm not pregnant. I don't have any sons on the way. Verse 12, turn back, my daughters, go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. It's not just that I'm not pregnant. I'm old. I probably ain't going to be getting married again. Okay? And then she goes on. She says, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? You're going to wait that long? Even if I could get married and get pregnant, are you going to wait that long? She's laying the cost out, right? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Are, are you willing to give up the possibility of getting married to follow me? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She is laying out the cost, right? And I want to talk to you about the destitution of being a widow in those days. It's tragic today. It's painful today. It rips your heart out today. Back then, it was a whole nother level. A woman did not have the right of inheritance. When her husband died, she did not get that land. So unless she had sons or a redeemer, something we're going to talk about more in chapter 2, or, or a group of people that's going to rally around her and help her, she is in grave trouble. And that is what she's warning these women of. If you come with me, there's a good chance you're not going to have a husband. And that's what you're in for. Go back. Find a husband. How would they respond? Verse 14, you're going to see two very different responses. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. You see what happened there? Orpah gave her a goodbye kiss and, and headed back. Ruth clung to her and Naomi says, follow her, follow Orpah. What would Ruth's decision be? You may have heard this at a wedding because these are some of the most beautiful words of love and loyalty and commitment in the whole Bible. Verse 16 says, Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. Naomi finally gave up after that. Verse 18 says, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now remember, Ruth, uh, Ruth, excuse me, Ruth made this commitment living moment by moment in chapter 1. She did not know about chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. Why did she make that decision when the cost was probably most of what she could see? I believe we see two things in what she said. Number one, just encompassing the whole thing, you see a loyal love for Naomi. Her love for Naomi was a big part of it. And you also see the seeds of a trust 
in Naomi's God when she says, your God, my God, right? I think about all that, and I think about the cost of following God in this world. Jesus tells us to count the cost. He doesn't hide the cost of following him like we're sometimes tempted to do. You remember Luke 14, 26, he says, up front, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How many of you know that does not mean we treat those people hatefully? We are told to love the people in our lives, right? But it means our love for Jesus so far outweighs our love for any other person in our lives, including ourselves, that when they say one thing and Jesus says another thing, we go with Jesus, even though it rips our guts out. Verse 27, he says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Some of you have been in moments where you had to count the cost of obeying Jesus. I know sometimes at that moment, all you can see is, is the cost. Will we kiss him goodbye at that moment? Or will we cling to him? What's going to make the difference? Same thing that made the difference for Ruth. She loved Naomi. What does Jesus say? He says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Even in the face of that cost. She also exhibited that trust in Naomi's God. Do we trust him in that moment? We can trust it'll be worth it in the end. Listen to some of what he told his disciples in encouragement. Luke 9, 24, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. All right, what about John 6? You remember the scene? Jesus had fed a crowd of thousands, bread and fish, and they wanted to make him king. They like a king that can whip up a meal like that out in the wilderness, right? Let's follow this guy. I'm going to paraphrase, Jesus says, I'm not here to be that kind of king. And many people walked away. We don't want whatever kind of king you came to be, Jesus. Then one of the most interesting verse numbers in the whole Bible, I know they were added later, but this is John 6, 66. John 6, 66. Because after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Is it worth the cost? Yes. Yes. Sometimes all we see is the pain. Sometimes all we see is the cost. 
Sometimes all we see is the puzzle piece of our lives that we're living in right now. And we're like, how does this fit? Right? Because we don't have the whole thing in front of us yet. I'm confused. I'm disillusioned because I don't know how this puzzle piece works. Right? Verse 19. That's where they were there in chapter 1. Living in one piece of the puzzle. It says, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Now, we know a few things about Bethlehem, things they didn't know yet. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The, the Hebrew word for stirred there is interesting. It has the, the word hum in it. You know what onomatopoeia is? Anybody? It's when a word sounds like what it is, like buzz. Right? Hum. Many believe this was Hebrew onomatopoeia. The whole town hummed when Naomi came back. Naomi's back. Naomi's back. Was that Naomi? Did you see Naomi's back? Right? And you see him right here. The women said, is this Naomi? And you say, why would they ask that? Many say they asked that because Naomi looked very different than the last time they had seen her. Have you ever or have you known someone who's gone through a hard season of their lives and the next time you see them, you see it on their face? You, you see the, the wrinkles where tears have been flowing and you know they've been hurt. You, you see maybe they're thinner, maybe they're not as strong as they were because they've been walking through it. I think that may have been what was going on with Naomi. Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. What, what did Naomi mean? Pleasant. Pleasant. Lovely. Don't, don't call me that. Call me Mara. That means bitter. Call, call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, there's a lot of questions in that loaded statement there about the Lord here, right? Was the Lord punishing her family, disciplining her? Some have made the case that Elimelech should not have left Israel to go to Moab. He should have stayed there and trusted God. The author of this book does not say. He does not say. We know a couple things when it comes to God's discipline, okay? Hebrews 11 makes it clear that God does discipline those he loves, but John 9 also makes it clear that not every tragedy in our lives is a result of our sin. Remember the blind man, the disciples said, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. This is for the glory of God. So I'm not going to be quick to say that all these circumstances were God's discipline, okay? Was that how Naomi saw it? Or was she simply saying, God's in control here? I know whatever comes in my life, however it comes, whether it's just the result of a fallen world or whatever, he's in control. Another great question. Okay. But she calls herself bitter because of all she's been through. Verse 22 says, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. He's like trying to bring out that this is a Moabite. You see that? And they came to Bethlehem. 
at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, I, I think about how we have to live in the present, but that God's not stuck in the present. I think about Bethlehem. A couple spoiler alerts here. This is Bethlehem where they're about to meet a, a wonderful redeemer named Boaz next week. It's Bethlehem where Israel's greatest king, King David, would be born. Where his descendant on a whole nother level, the king of kings, the son of God, would be found in a stable in a, a manger. All events that we know connect back to the return of these two grieving women to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest in the spring. But they didn't know all that yet. They, they lived their lives just like we do, one step at a time. I believe that one day when we see God face to face, we're going to look back and we're going to finally see how all the puzzle pieces fit. He already sees that. He's already working it out according to his perfect design. That's why trusting him as we live moment to moment is the wisest decision we can make. When I think of providence, I think of a quote from David Atkinson. He said, to concentrate primarily on second causes encourages us to be manipulators of the system. We know there's a lot of secondary causes to what happens in our lives, right? People do things, etc. Okay, he says, to concentrate on those second causes encourages us to be manipulators of the system. Concentration on the great cause teaches us to live by faith. Live by faith. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Do you believe that? Do you believe in the providence of God, the providence of Jesus, His Son? I think of, of Psalm 29. I read that in my quiet time this week. The, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And I think about this mighty God who is sovereign over everything. It took my mind to a weird place. I was a child in the 80s and I grew up watching a lot of Tom and Jerry. And most of the time after Jerry did something to make Tom mad, what did he do? He, he went running, right, because he was going to get it. But there were some episodes. you remember Spike the Bulldog? Sometimes Jerry would get Spike the Bulldog on his side. And then he'd go see Tom, and Jerry had a lot more courage and a lot more peace when he stood behind Spike the Bulldog. And I thought about that, and I thought about David. And David was like that, right? He was like us as a human alone. He's weak. He feels fear, doubt, despair. But then he would focus on this God who's enthroned over the flood. He says, may, may he give me strength. May he give me peace. And, and his courage returned and his peace returned so that he could make, take the next step in God's will for him. 
And so I want to close with a true story of someone who has learned how when the macro is getting dark, God often works in the micro. Someone who's learned that when we only see the cost, that it will be worth it in the end. Someone who has learned that when we can only see the moment, God sees it all and has a plan. Sometimes we, we learn from young people. We need to listen to young people when they talk and watch how they live. Sometimes we have things to learn from, from them. My wife was telling me about a, a basketball player. There's an article, March 16, 2022, called Choosing God Over College Basketball. A young lady named Leah Church, she always wanted to play at University of North Carolina, and she was good. She averaged 25 points a game, had a 47% field goal percentage. She was a Christian. She had a Christian coach for the first two years. Then that Christian coach retired, and, and things began to change. The culture of the team began to change. She stayed there at first as her teammates began to push her to join them and in getting drunk and, and having sex outside of marriage. She, she knew God sometimes calls us to stay in places like that and be a witness. But things took another step when the next coach came in and said, these are the progressive causes our team will support and we will all support them. She knew as a Christian at that point, she had a choice to make. And I want you to listen to the words of this young lady. She said, my mom would tell me light and darkness don't mix. It's, it's not you they dislike, but Christ in you. Leah says, I knew that, but it didn't make it any easier. She said, when the coach came out with the list of causes the team would be supporting, I knew I wasn't going to be able to compromise and go against biblical principles. I decided in light of eternity that basketball wasn't worth it. She said, I kept coming back to James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you. She writes, you may think in the moment, why am I giving up my senior season? But if you really trust his sovereignty and plans, you have to go to the end of the verse where it says his plans are to give you hope and a future. She goes on and she closes with this. She says, you just walk in the light he gives you. It's hard because I'm a planner. Any planners in the room? <laughs> it's hard because I'm a planner and the Lord doesn't give us the whole plan. She says, I think that's where faith comes in. In my story, God is going to be faithful. Just like he was in Isaac's or Abraham's or Ruth's story. His heart is true. He is going to be faithful. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you so much for chapter one of this book. Because every one of us who walks through this fallen world knows to at least some level us like to be in those ladies' shoes. The suffering in our lives may be different. It may be at different magnitudes, different types. But we all know what it is to live moment to moment. Sometimes look at that puzzle piece and wonder, how does this fit? Sometimes look at the cost of standing up for you and that cost looms large in our mind. And sometimes to just 
be blinded by the pain in this world. We confess that. We're human. We're finite. That's why we need you. That's why we need your word. That's why we need chapters 2 through 4 in this book. And we're so thankful for them. We know that even though this family lived in a terribly dark time, the the days of the judges, you you were working on the small scale in their family to do things that they couldn't even imagine in chapter one. May that give us faith that you're working for the good of those who love you today and for your glory, no matter what we're facing. And may we trust that, that you, you know the, the finished picture. I know one part of that for every believer. You're conforming us to the image of Christ. Thank you for your faithfulness. Help us to remember that what we don't see, you see. And you're faithful. Now, Lord, I pray that you bless Leah. And may we all walk in her footsteps when the time comes. May we count that cost and say, yes, Lord, I love you. I trust you. I will go with you wherever you may lead. Lord, I pray that this offering that we take would would bring glory to you and further the ministry of the good news of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. It's in his name we pray. Amen.